But follow along with me as I read 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8. Finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and he proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. You may be seated. I wasn't here last week, as Derek said, my mom had her 80th birthday party, so 40 of her children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren went to Ohio to give her a surprise party. Two days after her big party, I decided to go over and just visit her by myself. I went over to her house on an early morning to have some coffee with my mom. As I walked into my mom's house, I saw my sister Laura, who is now 58, going to turn 59 this year. She has the mind of about a three-month-old baby. She is totally dependent on my mom, who feeds her, changes her diapers. And the time I went in this past week, my sister wasn't eating, so it's kind of scary for my mom, because she's got to take care of her. Not only that, but you look around the house, and you see basically memories of my dad everywhere, who has passed away for 10 years. And then my mom's house has a lot of work to do, and here she is turning 80 years old. So in a sense, there's reasons for her to fear. So I asked her, I said, Mom, how are you really doing? Honestly, how are you doing? My mom said, I'm great. Chris, I'm great. Really, I am. I'm walking every day two to three miles. I have decided to turn off the 24-hour news cycle, which drives me crazy. And I'm doing things that bring me peace. She said, I'm tired of being discouraged, and I refuse to be miserable. 
I refuse to be miserable. It is, you know, it's, it's easy. It's easy to be miserable. It's natural for us to just sit in misery. The glass always seems half empty. It's either too hot outside or too cold, never just right, because we are creatures who are rarely satisfied. Misery is like a shadow. follows you everywhere you go. It's just it's part of our nature to be miserable. Well, Peter's writing to people who had it way worse than we do, and he's, his message is cheer up, stand strong, embrace life, live it. And so what we're going to do is we are going to learn from these 14 small little verses how to do this when it's so much easier to be miserable. And that's why the title of my message is Stop Being Miserable. That's the title. We begin this section in verse 8. Verse 8 begins with the word finally. Finally has that idea that Paul is transitioning into a new thought, as if he's going to start a new section. In fact, in your English Bible, it probably begins a new section for you. It does for mine. It begins over verse 8, suffering for righteousness' sake. But if you notice in verse 9, he says something that Derek touched on last week. Look at verse 9. He writes, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for this you were called. That phrase, this you were called, is the exact same phrase that was used in chapter 2, verse 21. And so in a way, what, Paul, what uh, Peter is doing here is he is using this to reinforce what has already been said to continue in it. If you have not heard Pastor Derek's message last week, you got to listen to it. I've listened to it twice, and I'm just telling you, this is the heart and soul of this book, specifically 21 through 24. It's, it beats through the whole rest of the book. In my mind, in my mind, verse 21 and 24 are the defining qualities of somebody who really lives with Jesus. I mean, it's easy to say I'm a believer. It's easy to have fruit that you're a Christian, you see things differently, but people who really walk like Jesus does, their life starts looking like verses 21 to 24. Let me show you what I mean. Look at it like this. Let's say... You have a pond that's flat, and you drop a pebble in that pond. And you know how it gives ripples. Well, that pond's effect is from that stone that was dropped in. In a way, 21 through 24 is the stone that should come crashing into our life with the key point being, because Christ suffered for you, let him be an example. As, Jesus, uh, as Derek kept saying, Jesus' life, should be a pattern for our life. Like you draw and write letters, you should walk like this daily. It should be a part of your life. And the corollaries that go with it, keep your mouth shut when you're reviled. Be quick to forgive when people hurt you. Trust God when things are difficult. Let that just wash over you. We should be able to talk about this all the time, but that's not going to be the point. Peter does say, if you live like this, it will affect how you work with your boss in verse 20, chapter 2. That when you have a bad boss, you'll endure mistreatment. In chapter 3, 1 through 7, if you live like Christ and you have a tough marriage, if your husband is a hard guy to live with, he'll teach the wife to be kind. In verse 7, if you have a 
A wife that is having difficulties, tough emotional times, it teaches the husband to be respectful. Why? Because Christ set an example. And then we get to chapter uh, 3, verse 8. He's talking to how do we treat believers within the church? How do we treat fellow Christians? Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love. Have tender heart. Have a humble mind. Be kind to one another. Why? Because Christ suffered for you. And then in verse 9, it talks about unbelievers. How are we to treat those outside who actually mock our faith, slander us, and don't agree with us? Verse 9 says, don't repay evil for evil, but bless them. Why? Because Christ suffered for you. That's the whole point. That is the heartbeat of Christianity. In fact, when I do marital counseling, to me, when I can tell a spouse is being a Christian, it's when they don't return their spouse's insults back to them. Do you know how hard that is? Are you a Christian? Live like 21 through 24. And you'll change, I think you'll change the world. You mean I'm supposed to live like that even when life is hard? Yeah. The truth of the matter is, life is hard. It is. Life at the time of this writing for Peter was hard. He's writing to people that were suffering under persecution. It was hard. And life is still hard. Life is hard for you. I know it is. I'm not one of those Christian pastors who think we should you know, plaster on the plastic smile and every day walk through daisies, licking lollipops, singing the hills are alive with the sound of music. We're not like Elf where we're, I'm in love, I'm in love, and I don't care who knows it. See, because I have Jesus. I'm not one of those pastors. I, I think we need to tell the truth. And the truth is life is hard. My, t- my preaching teacher once said, if you preach to people's hurts, their loneliness, their failure, their sorrows. If you talk about how life is unjust or it's difficult, you will never be without a congregation. I love this uh, statement I read in a recent book. This writer says, the pastor is not called to be an actor. That's not my job to act for you. Oh, you know, like, oh, I got a great message for you today. Not to be an actor, I'm not to be even a magician. Like, Aha, watch, I can pull a rabbit out of my head, a verse out of my thing. That's not my job. My job is, I am called to be myself, this writer says. The pastor is called to tell the truth as he has experienced it, for he is called to be human, to be human. And that calling is enough for any man, is what he writes. I can remember about three years ago, I'll never forget it. I was walking up this aisle. And I don't know why I remember that, but I remember looking out and I saw more than faces in the congregation. I saw people wanting to know two, they want to know two things. Will I be all right? Can I make it another day? And the reason I say that is because I looked out and I saw a family who just lost a loved one. I saw another family I knew was in financial trouble. I saw another family that was dealing with cancer. I saw another family facing divorce. I saw another family out of employment. And on and on, I looked, I'm telling you, it was like, oh, man, life 
is hard. It's hard. But I believe what Peter wants us to learn from this section is not to just settle and stay in that misery. Don't concede defeat and don't let life is hard be the final word. Don't let it. In fact, I think Peter wrote this book to say, when life is hard, and it's going to be hard, when life is hard, don't give in to misery. Don't give in to it. Don't crawl under your rock and die. Don't, as much as you want, press the snooze button ten times, pull the sheets over your head, and camp in those covers for the next seven hours. Don't do that. Why? Because of verse 10. Verse 10 is like a bolt out of the blue. When I first read it, I'm like, how did we go from Jesus suffering on the cross to verse 10? Verse 10 says, for whoever desires to love life and see good days, as if we should desire to love life and to see good days. Peter is suggesting here that we have something to live for. We have something more than just misery. We should want, nay, I say, expect to enjoy life. We should desire to love life and to see good days. The word for love is agape, God's own love bestowed upon us or poured into us or shed abroad in our heart. And because God's love is coursing through us, We should cherish and find delight in it. That's what the word love means. Cherish and find delight in life. We aren't merely meant to hang on by our fingernails for dear life. (laughs) I can't make it another day. But don't do that. Please don't do that. We are meant to connect in this moment God has given care deeply about the people that are with us, and experience life to the full. I love John 21.7. When Peter heard that Jesus was on the shore, remember Jesus is on the shore, he's cooking fish on hot coals. You could probably hear it crackling. And the disciples were out, and Jesus gets up, and he says, hey, cast your net over there. They weren't catching any fish, and they get a load of fish. And some bright guy said, hey, I think that's Jesus on the shore. And then 21 verse 7, it says, when Peter heard that it was the Lord, now remember, Peter's the one that just denied him three times. When Peter heard it was the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him and jumped into the water. I think that's what it means to love life. Jump in. Good is in reference to design. When God created the world, he said it was good. When he saw the different varieties of trees, the flowers on the plants, the strange and multi, multi-faced animals with trunks and tails and four legs and two legs and kangaroos. When, when he made fish, when he made blue skies and puffy white clouds and the sweet smells, nice strawberry or orange or the soft feel of grass on the bare feet, he said... It was good. And so verse 10 is the same idea. Love life, but enjoy good days. They're meant to be good. My question is, do you believe this? Because miserable people don't. Miserable people don't believe this. Most of the times, 
I don't. I kind of have that personality when I wake up in the morning. I don't see possibilities. I see problems. Oh, no. <laughs> what are the fires I got to put out today? I, I, I really don't want to get out of bed. To be honest, I'm a hider, not an embracer. Peter, however, he lives with gusto. I live like El Gordo, sitting on the couch, oh, not another day. All I'm trying to say is that God has given us tools for abundance. He has. He has made the world good. So, stop being so miserable. Stop being miserable. Two ways to live. He gives us two ways to live. How do we live like this? Actually, Jared, I, I just wrote my, nut, my notes. Jared writes, suck it up, Girl Scout, is what he wanted me to say, but I'm not going to say that. All right, so how do we do this? Two ways to live. Two ways to live. How do we do, especially when suffering's stalking us, or people are slandering us, or even when... You get a new pair of glasses. My whole identity shattered. What happens? How do you do it? There's two ways to live the good life. The first, he's going to tell us this. Own what is under your control. Take ownership for what you can control. Look at verse 10 through 12. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him... Keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good, and let him seek peace and pursue it. Those are three things we can control. That phrase, let him, means you can do this. Most miserable people, however, feel like they have no control. They're being attacked from all sides. They're helpless to change anything. So usually what they do is they complain. Wah, 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 they get surly. You know what surly is? You ever see when that lip curls, you know? Your wife brings you something good. Yeah, yeah, thanks a lot. That's surly. Miserable people, they get lazy a lot. They whine and they grumble and they act as if they can't do anything to stop the misery. I am a victim to misery. I can't do anything about it. In fact, the truth of the matter is, is we are no different than the Israelites. One of, to me, the most, one of the most human passages in Scripture is Numbers chapter 14. I want you to go there. Numbers is the uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, the fourth book. Go to chapter 14. Chapter 13 is interesting. The Israelites were rescued out of Egypt, out of Pharaoh's iron grip. They walked through the Red Sea that's split in half, and then they're going to go through the wilderness to get to the promised land. In chapter 13, they get to see it, the promised land. It's amazing. They send spies, and the spies look around. They say, grapes are giant over there, and the land's flowing with milk and honey. Great, good. But then some of the spies start saying, yeah, but, <laughs> but the Canaanites are big. They're really big. They're going to tear us up. You know, like that kind of wah, wah, wah. So chapter 14, chapter 14, watch. This is the most human passage. It's just like us. So they see the promised land. Chapter 14. Then all the congregation raised the loud cry, and the people wept that night. 
I don't want to go. You, I'm giving you a land full of milk and honey. It's got everything you want. <laughs> no. Then keep reading. And all the people of Israel grumbled. Oh, this isn't there. Whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or that we had died in this wilderness. I don't want to go to, we're going to die in that new land. I'd rather die back in Egypt. Whereas making bricks, being whipped in the back, I'd rather just die back there. Let the, but verse 3, why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Didn't you see the milk and the honey? No, all I saw was giant, gleaming, sharp sword, ready to cut off my neck and, and my kids, my wives. Wouldn't it not be better for us just to go back to Egypt? Then Joshua pipes in in verse 6. Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephthah were among those who had spied out the land. And they tore their clothes. That means they were ashamed at the way their people acted. Ah. Then it says, verse um, 7, Joshua said to all the congregation, the land which we passed through to spy out is exceedingly good land. It's good. The Lord delights in us. He'll bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only don't rebel against the Lord. Don't fear the people of the land. They're bread for us, meaning they're nothing. Their protection's removed from them. The Lord's with us. Don't fear them. That should have, I mean, this is Joshua. If you ever saw the Ten Commandments, he looked, he was ripped. So you should have listened to him. Then verse 10, nope, all the congregation said to stone them with stone. Get some stones and throw it right at Joshua's head. Hit him in the skull and knock him dead. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting. So all of a sudden, down comes this giant shaft of light. Humming above the tent of meeting. And the people are like, what in the world? And God says this in verse 11. How long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me? How long will they not believe in me? One writer said, the problem with the Israelites, it wasn't that they disobeyed. The biggest problem with the Israelites, they really didn't think God was that good. So if we go back to 1 Peter 3, what can we control? We can control three things, starting in verse 10. First thing we can control is our lips and our tongue. Keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit, or speaking lies. Control your tongue. When time's hard, control your tongue. Derek last week said, just be quiet. But Proverbs says, you know, with your tongue, you have the power in that tongue to bring life or to bring death to the situation. You can control that. What's really interesting, if you go to the book of Proverbs, I did this a long time ago. I took one of my old Bibles, went to the book of Proverbs, took a light blue pencil, and I underlined every verse in Proverbs that talks about the tongue. There's so many verses in Proverbs about the tongue. You won't believe it. And it says there are some words that are like death, words like obscenities, slander, gossip, running of the mouth where you just talk about you and your problems all the time, where you just air your opinions. Those are words of death. They don't help people. Then there's words of life where you encourage. You empathize with people. You can have words that are like apples of gold and pictures of silver. Why don't you use your tongue 
to make this world beautiful instead of Control your tongue. Second thing you can control is verse 11. Let him turn away from evil and do good. What does this mean? Well, temptation. Don't, don't be sucked into temptation. Turn away from temptation and do what God's will is. Do good. When people feel helpless and they have no control, they often follow the crowd. Proverbs 1, 10 through 11 says the crowd is always whispering and enticing people to come with them and do things you shouldn't do. And Miserable people often say, well, why not? Why not give in? Why not get drunk? Why not? not nothing's good being good anyhow. Why not cheat on taxes? Why not do evil because it sure seems like evil people never get caught? They don't? Really? Be a pastor for a while. Wait till you see and they come into your office after years of doing bad things. They get caught. They get caught. Be like uh, Joseph. Remember Joseph was the son of Jacob and he was thrown into a pit because his brothers were jealous of him and they sold him into slavery. And then his boss, slave owner, had a wife that thought he was good looking so she enticed him and said, sleep with me. And Joseph said, no, man. No. Because the Lord sees me, and I don't want to do evil before his eyes. That's what this is talking about. And then the third thing you can control is verse, the end of verse 11. Seek peace. For the eyes of the Lord are unrighteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Seek peace. Be a peacemaker. James said, peacemakers who sow in peace... Planting seeds of peace will reap a harvest of righteousness. The idea of sowing means it's going to take time, but you'll see how God's, God will reward you. Live this way. Live these three things because God's always watching. Read Psalm 11. What do we do when the foundations are being destroyed? He's saying, just know this, that God's eyes are on the righteous and the wicked. He's in his temple. He's watching. He's always watching us. But what happens when things still go bad as you try to live good? That's what verse 13 is asking. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? It's a rhetorical question. Two commentators can take this two ways. They're saying the question is trying to maybe imply the truth that if you do good, bad things usually won't come your way. That's what Wayne Grudem says. He says, if I keep my mouth from evil and I bless others and work for peace in general... Life will go well for me, in general. It's true. Try it. If you go to school, and you the coach tells you to do something, and you work hard, you keep your mouth shut, and you don't really you bring peace to the team. The coach will favor you. Your parent will favor you. Your employee will favor you. It will go well for you. It's a lot of proof that that is true. But if we keep reading, Joel Green, another commentator, actually says what he's saying is he's basically implying that Christians should expect harm from this world for the simple reason that righteous living always attracts unwanted attention. Look at verse 14 and 15. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear. So the idea is you probably will suffer when you're righteous. People who do good will always be out of step 
with the expected depressed norms of the culture. Goodness reveals the badness of others, and when it's exposed, they won't like it. You could ask it like this. Why do you think Jesus was crucified? I mean, I know why God sent him, but why do you think man said crucify him, specifically the Pharisees? Because I think he was so good. Because he was so good. And they were embarrassed of how bad they were. If you live a good life, people will, a lot of times, not want you around. So what do you do then? What do you do when you are being slandered or you're suffering for being good? Verse 14 and 15 say, have no fear, don't be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy. Always being prepared to make it offense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. In other words, it's like this. Instead of Instead of owning what's under your control, when things are out of your control, trust the Lord when life is not in your hands. Trust Him. You've probably seen this picture before, but I love it because it's the idea of this storm raging and the guy's hiding in a lighthouse that's keeping him safe. Christ, my Lord, is my lighthouse that when my storms are raging, I hide in Him. Trust in Him. This actually comes from an Old Testament verse in Isaiah, chapter 8, verse 13. The Assyrians are coming down to take Israel captive. And if you know anything about Old Testament history, basically Assyria was this northern kingdom that was terrible, and they came down to Israel to take them as slaves. It would be like Canada coming down and taking us as slaves. Wouldn't that be terrible? It would be kind of nice. Canadians have it kind of nice. I wouldn't mind if Canada came down. But the Assyrians weren't nice, and they're coming down, and they were going to take... The Israelite slaves, and God tells the people in Isaiah 8, he says, don't fear what they fear, don't be in dread. And in verse 13 says, but the Lord of hosts, the Lord who commands the armies of heaven, that's what it means, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy, let him be your fear, let him be your dread. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. So when things are tough, trust God. Trust him. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. This verse, verse 15, I find fascinating where it says, in your hearts set Christ as holy. That means set him apart as holy. And the idea is always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that's in you. The word defense in there in the Greek is where you get the word apologetics, apologia, meaning putting up a defense for reasons you believe something. Actually, this verse has spun a whole, what I would call discipline in the Christian realm of apologetics, where men will argue with atheists and non-believers, defending their faith. Ravi Zacharias is probably one of the most famous ones. He'll go to Harvard University, or he'll go to uh, Princeton, and these Mecca universities and argue for the Christian faith, and his ministry is called a ministry of apologetics. But I don't believe that's the intent with this verse. The intent with this verse is as people watch you, as they watch you live for Christ when nobody else does, as they watch you hanging in there while your buddies go back to the party life, 
or they see you suffer underneath a rotten boss, but you keep your mouth shut, or they see you in a marriage that's tough, but you hang in there. They will say, why? Be ready for that moment. Have reasonable answers. Is Christ your Lord? I could ask it like this. Why do you have hope when there's no reason to have hope? Why are you still holding strong when every, most people quit? Are you prepared to answer intelligently? Can you, even ask this question, can you share your faith on a one-on-one, not an apologetic realm, but you know, a, a nighttime when you're one-on-one in a serious discussion and somebody says, can I ask you a question? Do you think you could share your faith even then? Are you prepared to? That's what this means. Can you answer why is Jesus your Lord? So what we've talked about so far is verse 10 says, God has designed us to love life. The way we do that is we control those areas of our life that we can control, our lips, our actions, and in those that we can't, we trust God. So instead of being miserable... Stand strong, persevere, be bold in your witness for Christ. But there are still some of you in here that uh, you're thinking, "Ah, you don't know, You, you just don't know how bad my life is. If you did, you would just cut me some slack, let me be miserable, okay? If that's you, he gives you two examples to follow. The first one is the obvious one. In verse 18, we already talked about it, is Christ. He suffered, leaving you an example. And his crucifixion, his suffering, was the greatest moment of righteous suffering we've ever seen. That's an example for you. But if you're like me, when you hear that, you'll say this. Yeah, but that's Jesus. Okay, I'm not Jesus. You know, he's God. I'm this, I'm just this guy. Okay, he gives you another example. This one's even better. So if you think you have it bad, if you think you got it bad, ask yourself, how do you think Noah felt for a second? Look at what it says in verse 20. Because they formerly did not obey, these are the people that were making fun of Noah, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Just a second, how long did it take to prepare the ark? A hundred years. Okay, a hundred years. Think about that a second. So Moses is building an ark. It's taking him a hundred years. And his neighbors are saying, what are, you, what are you doing in a garage? Huh, Noah? I'm making a boat. You've been working on that for 20 years. I know. I know. Uh, is it one of those teenage, you know, fiberglass things? You're gonna, you want to do it when you're 18, you got a fiberglass model boat, and you never, when you're 40, and you're, oh, maybe I'll get back to that. Is that what's going on? No, no, no. God's going to flood the earth, and uh, everybody's going to die. Okay. Noah? Yeah. Noah was also told by God that the skies were going to burst open and flood the earth with water, and it never rained before. He was told, now to me, get this, this is crazy. He was told by God, if you build this ark, there's going to be all kind of, all the animals of the earth are going to come by twos and sevens. Every animal is going to come to your front lawn 
stomp on your tulips and come into your boat that you made. Everyone. Hippos, alligators, seriously. Yeah. What do you think his neighbors thought when the giraffe started coming? Maybe he's right. Or there's something wrong with this guy. He's a zoo, he's zoo, zoo guy. We'll call him zoo guy. And he was told that everyone, and here's the kicker, everyone who did not get on his boat would die. So, Noah, you want me to get on your boat because I'm going to die in a great flood. Sorry. They thought he's nuts. They had to. They had to think he's nuts. It's, it's like telling your friend that you really believed a man lived 2,000 years ago and he can see everything I'm doing right now. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father and someday, someday, he's going to come back and he is going to un, just unhinge this world with fire. And then he's going to take me up to heaven with him and he's going to give me a brand new body and I am going to be his brother and rule everything with him someday. <laughs> yeah, right. You really believe that? Yeah, I do. I, I do. See, so if you think we have a strange message, imagine being Noah. And then it started raining and only eight survived. They who did not obey, who grew impatient with God, drowned in water, and they are perishing in prison. There's some question on verses 19 to 20. What does this mean? Here it says in verse 18, Jesus died, then he rose again in spirit. And, and then verse 18, in which he went, proclaimed the spirits in prison. Verse 20, because they formerly did not obey. So the, there's a lot of questions. Who did Jesus go proclaim to? Because we believe when Jesus died, he went to hell. What do you mean he went to hell? Well, he went to Abraham's bosom, Hades, the underworld, to set those Christians in the Old Testament free and the non-believers in the Old Testament or believers in the Old Testament free, non-believers in the Old Testament, Jesus preached to, basically, that's what this is about, that you are, you are not going to receive the favor, favor of my Father. And there's some scholars that believe this is actually talking to angels that came down in Genesis 6 and had kids, the Nephilim, which were giants. And we'll talk about that in 2 Peter. I don't have time to talk about that now. But Noah's, Noah's brought up here for one reason. If you feel like you're suffering unjustly and it doesn't make sense, Noah's here to tell you, just like Jesus, he was brought safely through the waters, the troubles, the intense suffering. Because he stayed faithful, trusting completely in God's word and trusting in God's timing to fulfill his word. More specifically for you, here's Noah's message. He teaches us, though the whole world may be against you right now, if you stay faithful, because I, 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 know, I know what some of you are going through right now. If you stay faithful, God will see you through the worst of storms. So the question is, are you in a storm right now? Be patient and wait for rescue. Like Noah, stay faithful. Own what you cannot control. 
and trust God for what you cannot. Interestingly, in verse 21, he talks about baptism, and he says how baptism is a symbol of what Noah went through and what the believer goes through. And he's saying baptism, which corresponds to this, meaning the illustration of Jesus and Noah, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, meaning the water doesn't save you. Some people believe in baptismal regeneration. If you go underneath the water, that's what saves you. No, he's saying it's not the water, but it's the appeal to God. It's it's the appeal to God by faith. I believe you're going to get me through this. I believe because Jesus rose from the dead, I can trust his promises. And so when we go underneath the water, the water symbolizes the wrath of God. We are kept safe, and then we come up and we are new and cleansed. That's what baptism is a symbol of. Going under the water signifies wrath. As you hold your breath, you're waiting to endure. You're being cleaned at the same time, knowing eventually you'll come up out of it. Trials are our current waters. We are submerged into them. We hold our breath, believing in the resurrection that Jesus will rescue us. And then we will see him, the one, as he's described in verse 22. Look at what he's like. He's gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having being subjected to him. So present tense, he is at the right hand of God. Who is Jesus? What is he doing there? Well, everything's under his feet. Angels, demons, powers, authorities, meaning not just rulers, but the entities behind the rulers, the evil, evil demonic forces, Jesus has under control. Jesus has it under control. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Yes, Chris, I do. Then why are you so miserable? Don't be so miserable. Here's the question. Did God create us to be miserable? Did he send us on this earth simply to suffer? Does God find joy in our misery? Like, does he relish that we're miserable? There's only one way to answer this. What is the end game? What is he, why did he create us? Psalm 1611 says, at the right hand of God, where Jesus is now sitting, at the right hand of God are pleasures forevermore. Pleasures. Hebrews 12, 22 said, we didn't come to a mountain, a fire, Mount Sinai. We came to Mount Zion, where Jesus is there with angels, thousands upon thousands in festal assembly, meaning they're partying up there. That's what's waiting for us. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. We've been made for joy. Peter says here, love life and desire to see good days. Do you have that joy? My mom has that joy. Not only is she, you know, when I was there, she's thinking about the garden still, still early before spring, and she's still talking about the garden, and she's talking about the pool that she can't wait to get ready for the grandkids to go in. She's got joy. She's always been a person that wouldn't let misery have its last say. In fact, the reason why I played football, my eighth grade year, going to ninth grade year, I went from a private school to a public school. And I was scared because I didn't know anybody on the public school team. And I said, I don't want to go out for the team. And it was getting late August. I don't want to go out for the team. My dad said, well, if you don't want to, I'm not going to tell you what to do. It's your life. My mom said, no, you're going out for the team. But, Mom, they're big. I don't care. You're good at football. And they 
She called up my brother-in-law, Mike, and said, Mike, come over here, take Chris to practice with you. Mom, I don't want to go. Just be quiet, you're playing. It's because I played football because of my mom. Stop being so miserable. Are you miserable? Why? We are meant to love life and to see good days. Do you believe that? 